Yes, hello everyone. Welcome back again to the Lars Resort. Uh, back at it this week. It is Wednesday afternoon. Nice weather outside. I'm going to see if I can squeeze in a, a walk with the dog before the matches uh, tonight. Where, of course, all eyes are on the very, very exciting return leg between Man City and Bayern Munich, where it's all to play for. Definitely. Uh, no, I, I don't really think so. Some things to get through. Uh, we're going to do the same thing as last episode, just sort of a small cavalcade of sort of vaguely hot takes, some slightly more tepid takes, uh, I guess. And and you know what? At the risk of turning this into Frank Lampard daily, we don't want that. But it's just hard to look away at the moment from Chelsea. It's just it's just so much. There's so much going on there. Um, they're out of the Champions League, obviously, could not get the job done in the return leg against Real Madrid. But you know what? I'm going to do a very rare thing for me, which is to kind of stick up for Frank Lampard a little bit. Uh, I've seen the team selection for Chelsea last night uh, described as ludicrous, I think, by one newspaper article. I thought that was a bit strong. And I guess that's what happens when when you do something slightly different, uh, try something slightly different, and it doesn't, uh, something that's maybe slightly counterintuitive, and if it doesn't work out, people will tend to want to jump up and down on your head afterwards and say, ah, what a foolish thing to do. But I actually think uh, what Lampard did in the game against Real Madrid now, I don't think that was a terrible idea. I, 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 without, without reading the guy's mind, God knows I can't do that, but without wanting to, to try, I, I, I feel like he looked at the first leg and thought, huh, when did we threaten Real Madrid? When did we have some kind of joy against this team? And it was mostly early on in that game where they forced their defenders into, sorry, where they forced their midfielders into some uncharacteristically sloppy turnovers and it looked like they could hurt them at the break. And so he went with this sort of high-energy sort of uh, Conor Gallagher and uh, and uh, N'Golo Kante playing off Kai Havertz. So you got two really energetic, good-pressing players, decent ball winners, playing pretty high up the field with the intention, I suspect, being to put pressure on on Tony Cruz, who's kind of directing things from deep from Real Madrid, uh, on on Luka Modric to try to force them into making mistakes. Now, these are not players who make a lot of mistakes, but we did see in the first leg they they had a couple of sloppy moments, and and I think the, the other upshot of that is that if you have two really hard pressing running guys in those areas, you make it harder for Real Madrid to move the ball around and and build up their play. And I think. They, in terms of achieving what you were setting out to do, I thought they were largely successful, really, in, in stopping Real Madrid from playing. There are two problems, though. First one being that Real Madrid didn't need to play. They were already 2-0 up, so they could just kind of sit back and sort of wait for counterattacks, and, 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 uh, which eventually they did. And it's frustrating, I guess, for Chelsea, because in the first leg, the one thing they kept having trouble with was that Ancelotti looked at the three at the back wing back formation and said, okay, uh, Junior, uh, Vinicius Junior, uh, Rodrigo, you guys just go very, very wide and sort of hang around in that sort of awkward space that you always get with the back three that's sort of slightly behind the wing back and outside of the wide center half. That, that sort of area they had a lot of trouble with uh, in, in the first leg. 
and, and that's exactly what ends up hurting them for the for the first goal, right? When you uh, when you get Rodrigo d- down that flank and uh, Kukurea get gets kind of baited into to trying to press a player he shouldn't be pressing, and it leaves poor uh, Trevor Chalaba all alone, and and he makes a bad tackle and he looks stupid, but it's, it's much more of a, a Kukurea error in in my opinion. Anyway, it was that sort of area of the field that undoes them, so that that tactical problem still existed but also the the main problem with this approach this sort of uh, uh Gallagher and uh, Golo Kante press in advanced areas type of thing is that when you have especially you end up with not a lot of like natural goal scorers on the pitch and this is where the criticism I guess is legitimate because you can look at they had to overturn a two goal deficit and you start with what three center halves four central midfielders, two wingbacks, and and kind of an attacking midfielder playing out of position up front. Like, there's not a ton of goal scorers in this team. And and as it happened, their best chances kind of fell to N'Golo Kante, which is not what you want, but that's what will tend to happen when he is in that area of the field. And I remember this happening quite a lot under Maurizio Sarri because he also pushed him a bit further forward to sort of disrupt the rhythm of the opponent. And I think that's an interesting use of N'Golo Kante. But it does mean, because he has this sort of burst of energy and a burst of speed, he gets into really promising positions. But, like, the dude is not a finisher. So that that was a problem. And I, I guess it's easy in hindsight to say you'd rather have had Sterling in those areas. You'd rather have had Michala Mudrik in those areas. Maybe even Mason Mount. But you also lose some of this off-the-ball stuff then, which which is actually very important, even if it's less sexy. So I, I don't want to throw Valampar to the Wolves for that the way he handled that game. I thought under the circumstances, that wasn't a terrible game plan. And actually, <laughs> obviously he's gone been criticised for how dreadful they were against Brighton. But really, he's been handed a bit of a hospital pass here. Like, I think Chelsea have been dysfunctional all season. I don't think even an enormously super, superb, brilliant manager could go straight in and immediately figure out this team because I think it's a the squad is a bit of a mishmatch. We've spoken about it at length. And of course, you come up against Brighton, who are still kind of Brighton, so I guess they still get uh, underrated. No one likes being beaten at home by Brighton, being schooled by Brighton. It just doesn't feel good if you're a Chelsea fan. But the reality is Brighton is one of the best coach teams in the division, one of the best structured teams. They're kind of everything Chelsea aren't. And uh, that that was always going to be difficult for them. Uh, so, so, so in terms of on the field, the last two defeats for Lampard, I have sympathy for, for his position and the fact that he's been given a very, very difficult job. But I am really enjoying the sort of spectacle of, of, of Frank Lampard having to be out front and centre uh, of, of being the guy who has to field all the questions about the sort of ongoing nonsense of the <laughs> Todd Bowley and Claire Lake ownership of this football club. And this is a little while ago. I didn't pick up on it at the time, but it's worth spending some time on. The James Corden story is hilarious. It's so funny. And whether it's true or not, who knows? I think it first was published in The Sun, so, you know, take it with a pinch of salt. But the fact that is, because the story's out there, Lampard gets asked about it in the press conference. And, and I want to do a first for this spot. I want to bring in some external audio here because it is so funny. Let's let, let's just find this clip here. Some reports that uh, Todd Burley took advice from James Corden about appointing you. And when it comes to winning this competition, are Real Madrid in a league of their own? It's a funny joke. Solid uh, 6 out of 10 joke. Um, yeah, I, I saw the headline of uh, James Corden. 
Um, and um, I'm, I'm absolutely not aware whether it's true or not. But it's obviously a great headline to to put together with um, casually from the outside. So I think um, when I look at the success uh, of Todd Bowley, the owners of Chelsea Football Club, um, I think you have to respect that success and respect the idea that they will probably make decisions based more than a conversation um, with one person. Um, so that's as much as I'm going to give you two questions. You, you got to feel for Lampard here, right? Because whether Lampard is a good manager or not, you know, time will tell. Like, we don't know yet whether he's a good manager or not. We'll, time will tell. But I think one thing we can all probably agree with about Frank Lampard is I think he's a guy who has a keen sense of understanding where his bread is buttered. You know, power structures, which people you got to stay in with and which people you got to be nice to and this sort of thing. You know, he's, his, his uncle Harry was an underrated politician in that sense. And I think, uh, I think uh, Frank has some of that as well. So you can almost, in that clip, and certainly if you see the video and in the clip as well, you can kind of hear his brain ticking over like the gears are turning. How can I explain, how can I answer this question without A... Not without insulting Todd Bowley, and B, ideally not insulting James Corden either, but C, also not sounding like a massive lunatic. And that's a very difficult thing to do, because, of course, if if the story is true, if Todd Bowley did, in fact, ask James Corden, then that is just crazy. Like, what? I mean, even casually... Um, but of course you can't you can't really just Lampard can't really come out and say that. Well of course you didn't ask James Corden. That would be an absurd thing to do. Because what if he did? And then of course Lampard knows that his current employment situation may not be permanent. He might be back he might be back on the light entertainment circuit before you know it. So you obviously don't want to be mean about Corden. Uh, so he gotta find his way out of it. And uh, yeah, poor guy, it's not a good position for him to be put in. Of course. And I love the idea that, yeah, of course course because uh, Todd Bowley and the guy I mean he is very rich Todd Bowley so he must be very successful and very clever so he, he can't have just asked one person I guess that is one way out of this predicament for Lampard I mean it's true maybe he didn't just ask maybe James Porton maybe he also asked like John Oliver and Stephen Colbert as well like other other chat show people who knows that old nonsense that comes and goes doesn't really matter the games happen the games matter a lot more obviously but then we have this crazy story <laughs> <laughs> from Jacob Steinberg in The Guardian, who's a very serious guy, covers Chelsea, uh, wouldn't have run this unless he had, you know, totally bulletproof sources, about uh, Todd Bowley's sort of uh, motivational team talk in the Chelsea dressing room, which I think is worth worth visiting a little bit here. Uh, because according to Jacob Steinberg, the, the co-owner, Todd Bowley, was joined by his fellow board members, uh, Bedadik Bali and Hans-Björg Wisch, when he addressed the squad after Chelsea fell to their third consecutive defeat. Bowley, barracked by supporters during the Brighton game, waited for Lampard to finish talking to the players before stepping up to make it clear that the hierarchy expected far better after spending close to $600 million on signings since buying the club last summer. About an hour passed before Bowley, Bali and Wisch were seen exiting the dressing room, and although it is not unusual for owners to speak to players one insider said the whole thing was weird <laughs> yeah Todd, Todd Bowley came in to, to let them know what was what I mean I'm sure the players themselves were not already aware that this has been a bad season and that losing all these games is kind of sad and embarrassing for Chelsea that's something that was uh, that was new to them I'm sure that Todd Bowley brought to the table here 
Now, on the issue of owners coming into dressing rooms, that is something that happens in football. It happens more in other countries than than England. I think certainly in Italy, there's a pretty big tradition of, you know, the clubs are owned by some kind of local big cheese um, who, who who enjoys the limelight and enjoys the status of, of being the guy who owns the football club and therefore doesn't mind spending a bit of money on it, but then will also kind of, like, uh, get involved. Like, I think it's fair to say Silvio Berlusconi was not a stranger to the, uh, the, the Milan dressing room back in the day. You know, this sort of thing, it, it does happen, and it's something that Frank Lampard then addressed. He talked about it. He said, I'm comfortable with it. There was some criticism of our old owner, Abramovich, for not coming to games, for not being around. That wasn't always true. When an owner is very invested in a team and wants to help them improve, it's their prerogative. It had never really happened to me before I came to Chelsea, and I remember being really happy that you could touch the owner, high-five them, and you can listen to them and feel them. I don't think it's a bad thing in terms of the identity of the club where you want to go, so I have no problem with it. So, I mean... I think Frank Lampard, the player, definitely didn't mind being able to high-five Roman Abramovich in the dressing room after some wins and, and strike up a connection there. Because, you know, this is something I guess most of us know from our careers and our lives and our, yeah, our professional lives. If your boss likes you, that's nice. If your boss's boss likes you, that is very good. That's much better. Like that's a, that's a good place for you to be in, you know. And in in uh, Super Frankie Lampard's time at Chelsea, uh, coaches would kind of come and go, but but Abramovich, you know, was the constant power base of the, of that club. So in many ways, it would be much more useful for Lampard to have a good relationship with Abramovich in terms of uh, yeah, when when the contracts were to be negotiated, and maybe you know maybe Frank Lampard had some some firm views about certain coaches and their methodology. Nice to have a have a direct line to the to the chairman then to the owner so i'm sure lampard didn't mind having a, a relationship with them i'm sure lampard didn't mind him coming into the dressing room uh, so so you could get some face time and, and and bask in victories together but there is another side of this which is it does rather undermine the actual coach a little bit uh, when an owner is involved in that sort of manner and there's the other thing the whole Bowley getting into the dressing room was spoken about a lot because it isn't really what's done here. But there's a there's a bit in uh, Jacob Steinberg's piece which I thought was was kind of almost more shocking and more deserving of attention, which is a paragraph here. It is understood one senior player signed for a large fee in the past 12 months was singled out for heavy criticism. That player, whose identity is not being disclosed, is believed to be disillusioned with the situation and cut a disgruntled figure in training before Chelsea's attempt to overturn a 2-0 deficit from the first leg against Madrid. So not only, like... Uh, telling them it was all very bad. Bowley actually like was, got stuck in to one of the players who had been signed under his uh, under his time at the club. Now, hmm, senior player signed for a large fee. I think senior player last twelve months probably not one of all the young guys who arrived in January. I'm thinking so likely one of the guys. I mean, who did they spend money on in the summer? You know, Koulibaly maybe hasn't lived up to it. I mean, Raheem Sterling, you'd say, is maybe a, a possibility here. Someone who spent a lot of money on and whose uh, output hasn't been the same as it was in Manchester City. Uh, Kukurea, of course, has had poor Kukurea has had a dreadful time. Uh, so, you know, th- 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 there are some possibilities, but someone who has joined the club fairly recently getting dug out in front of everyone by Todd Bowley. And I'm just kind of thinking, if you're that player... <laughs> You must be sitting there, like, because Todd Bowley is a guy who has clearly shown so far that his uh, grasp of how to run a football club is is not very firm. 
Um, I mean, I keep thinking back to that quote from the conference he spoke at when he talked about how, well, you know, this is no different from any other human capital industry. You know, you just get the good people together and you make them collaborate and, and off you go. It has proven to be a little bit more complicated than that, hasn't it, Todd? You know, th this is a, a co-chairman who in his first year in this sport has initially spent quite a lot of money on some players in spite of not really having a sporting director or a structure in place. So presumably those players were brought to some extent at the behest of a coach who he then sacks immediately after the season starts. Not because the results are bad, just because they didn't see eye to eye. He wasn't active in the WhatsApp and he didn't want to collaborate and all this sort of stuff. You then bring in Graham Potter, who you like. You are very aligned with Graham Potter. Uh, but then you sack him because this massively like bloated squad that doesn't make any sense that you've bought for him, he's not able to make head nor tails of it, which, which I don't think many coaches would be. Because they they have like they have thirty players and there's not room in the dressing room and you got three players in some positions and no players in others and it's all a mess. Uh, so so he he even though he was very aligned and presumably was active in the dress in the WhatsApp, you sack him and then you bring in Frank Lampard with with so little time before these uh, games against Real Madrid that there's no real chance for him to change much on the training ground, uh, and nothing much improves. In fact, it seems to have gotten worse. There's not a lot of evidence that Todd Bowley is particularly well qualified to run a football club at, at, at this point of his life. Maybe he'll get better at it. We'll see. But so certainly he's be, but he's becoming this sort of buffoonish figure, uh, maybe unfairly. But, you know, there are other people involved with running this. I mean, there's you, you read some places that it's actually Bali who's kind of the power behind this. And Bowley's just the more sort of face of it all. But either way, he's becoming a sort of slightly f ridiculous figure. So him stepping into the dressing room and, and sort of turning to a, an experienced uh, uh, f professional footballer and telling him, you're very, you know, you're very bad. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, I'm amazed he didn't get punched. I mean, I don't advocate violence, as you know, but some sort of like the a performative sort of Will Smith-esque sort of not that violent, but a slap nonetheless kind of thing, I think might have been in order there. Um, either way, we move on, and I can only imagine the atmosphere is kind of strange in that dressing room now, especially with the player then Harry Lampard talks, yeah, it's great to have Todd come down and, and tear <laughs> And, and be mean to my players. I mean, that's that's what you want in a football club. Very, very strange goings on at at Chelsea. Uh, that whatever you say about the uh, Boliagbali uh, Clear Lake uh, ownership of Chelsea, it hasn't been boring so far. Of course, you come back to the fact that there are some really good players in that squad. You do have this odd thing you have to do in the summer now because for FFP reasons, they really need to sell some players and right quick. And because of how accounting works, the best thing to do is to sell homegrown players. So, you know, Mason Mount, maybe Conor Gallagher, these guys are, are you know, there'll be some kind of sale. Uh, and then you have a bunch of like squad players on huge money who don't fit into the team anymore that you're going to have to try to shift when the entire world is no knows that you're desperate to get rid of them. Uh, good luck. Uh, getting some good value out of those deals, Todd Bowley. I look forward to following that uh, this summer. God damn, we've almost done an entire episode just on this. I just think it's it's just really funny what's going on there. There was some stuff at the weekends we we got to talk about. Aston Villa, actually good, question mark, says in my notes. Because this is, you know, ahead of this game against Newcastle, I'll stand by this. Their underlying numbers in this great run under Unai Emery 
have not been amazing. Yeah, if you look at it from, from the 1st of January into before the Newcastle game, only City and Arsenal have taken more points than Villa, but... If you look at the XG, they were 9th for XG created and 14th for XG conceded. So only six teams in the league had conceded a higher XG number, uh, whereas they were distinctly mid-table for XG created. And and listen, that that will suggest that you've been a little bit efficient in that phrase. I'll, I'll stand by that. That's what those numbers mean. But... There was nothing efficient or or lucky or whatever about this game against Newcastle. They were fantastic. They just, uh, I thought Emery altered his approach a little bit because they've not been a very high pressing team. They've not been a super aggressive team under him, but they really went at Newcastle and just wouldn't let them settle in the game, wouldn't let them get anything going. And, And Newcastle kind of, I anticipated that, uh, well, wrongly, as it turns out, that Aston Villa's kind of patient build-up from the back would come unstuck against an aggressive, uh, pressing Newcastle team. But it was the opposite thing that happened. It was that Aston Villa came out were super aggressive, and, and, and Newcastle struggled to build their play. So it was a really, really impressive performance by, by Aston Villa in that game. And there was nothing, there was no no dodgy numbers at that. That was just really, really good. So it was absolutely fascinating to see in the run-in if they could maybe... I was about to say sneak a Champions League spot. I mean, surely that will be a step too far. But you know what? Because this season, the way it's shaken out, obviously Chelsea having a total nightmare, Liverpool being out of sorts, Tottenham being a hot mess, even if they still have a good number of points. There is a great opportunity here for someone like Aston Villa or even Brighton to sort of sneak into a Champions League spot, uh, which would be which would be tremendous. I'd love to see it. There's still enough games left that uh, that that sort of thing might happen. Uh, great stuff from Aston Villa. I mentioned Tottenham. Uh, Tottenham really are a hot mess, and that that was that felt like a new low this weekend, losing at home to Bournemouth. And you could say I'm being, you know, I'm overreacting to to the result, which possibly is true. They did create a reasonable number of chances in that game. You know, if Richarlison's header goes on the one the other side of the post, then you know we're not probably talking about this. But the one thing that Tottenham have done well this season has been to win this sort of be, uh, winnable routine home games. They they have been getting it done in those games. I can read statistics for you. In their games against teams that are 10th and below in the table, uh, they, they've played all of them except Crystal Palace at home so far, and they've won every single one of those games except this one now against Bournemouth. It was the first time they goofed at home against the team from the lower half of the table. And if you've ever watched Tottenham and you think, this team is terrible. How on earth are they so high on the table? I mean, that is the reason. They have been racking up the points in these sort of winnable home games. And in, in, in games where I guess, even if the team isn't very good, the sort of elite quality that they have will we'll see them right at some point. Now, now as Tottenham uh, continue to be a bit bad, as they continue to not improve after Conte departed, you're going to see a, a proliferation of, uh, of of hot takes saying Conte was right, you know they they're bad. They they can't play under pressure. It's all very comfortable. All this sort of stuff, which for me is a very frustrating take. That's sort of I tear my hair out and throw things at the computer. Like it doesn't matter whether what Conte said in that infamous press conference was right or not, because you know what, he was there to fix the problem, not to diagnose the problem. 
right? It's like a plumber who, who spots a leak and goes, well, that leak is really bad. And then you try to pay him $15 million a year to fix the leak. And you say, well, I can't fix it. This bathroom is awful. It's, everything's leaking. There's water everywhere. I can't, I can't fix this. I'm off to try to fix a much nicer bathroom that's already working pretty well. Bye-bye. Uh, and then you go back and then he leaves. And then you go into your bathroom and you think, wow, you know, that plumber, he knew his stuff. He's totally right. Everything's leaking. This bathroom is awful. It's it's just such a bad take, and we had this with Mourinho as well. After he was sacked, Tottenham continued to be bad. I was like, ah, everything Mourinho said about how bad this team is was completely correct. It's like, well, yes. And the whole point was that he wasn't able to fix it. It, it drives me absolutely crazy, these guys. But yeah, Tottenham continued to be bad. And, and the thing that's frustrating with Stellini is that he's just kind of doing the same stuff, mostly. <laughs> it's, still, it's the same formation. It's more or less the same players. It's the same lack of a clear game plan with, with the ball. Um, it, it's almost as if they, they thought, well, you know, the work that's being done is really good. It's just Conte is a madman, so let's just get rid of him. But, but, but that's not right. I mean, it wasn't working. It wasn't very good. Uh, so, so Tottenham were kind of stumbling uh, towards an ignominious end to the season. Which is doubly frustrating because it didn't have to be like that. In spite of everything that had gone wrong, they had gotten themselves into a position where qualifying for the Champions League was a real possibility. That doesn't look like it's going to happen now, which is which is real bad. Uh, for it's, it's important for Tottenham financially to sort of sneak in. We don't need to have that conversation again. But, uh, oh boy, not good from uh, from Tottenham. Um, I had more, but I spent so much time on Lampard. I'm sorry. Uh, Brighton. Brighton are absolutely incredible. I just want to say it again. Um, they're, they're so good. They're genuinely one of the best teams in the league right now. Not even sort of... They're not good for Brighton. You know, this is this is incredible what Brighton are doing because they're plucky old Brighton. They're just one of the best teams in the league full stop right now. And there's a the whole discussion of how much of that, you know, has the Serbi, you know, showed that Potter is a fraud because, you know, Potter leaves, the Serbi takes over and, and, and everything becomes much better. I, I, I think that's a bit of a limited way of looking at it. Uh, let, let's use a metaphor. So say Brighton are one of those houses that gets sold on homes under the hammer here in the here in uh, the UK. They have a property show where people like buy slightly decrepit uh, properties at auction and then they fix them up and, and either rent them out or in most cases flip it and then they make a profit because, you know, a, and this this is, turns into a reality show frequently hosted by Dion Dublin, actually. And Graham Potter came in and saw, yes, this, this is indeed a house. It has four walls. It has a roof. It's got stairs going all the way up to the bedroom, uh, but it needs a lot of fixing up and he and he, he got some solid work done making this house better. He got the, the, the craftspeople people in uh, and, and he made everything better things are are, are much more functional and, and then he flipped it at a profit and received a lot of praise for the good work he'd done to this house but the Serbi to my mind is more like some very clever interior decorator man who, who who's come in and just seen yes this is a solid house but well, it could be so much more if you if you knock down this wall and if you put a balcony up there and you put some flowers over there maybe we could have put a sauna over there like the, the loads of, like fancy flourishes you can put on this house to make it brilliant and, and that doesn't mean i don't think that the work that the initial uh, the, the initial uh, houseman <laughs> 
Graham Potter did, making it much more solid and much more better, much more better, this is great grammar, uh, making it much better, is devalued. I think he still did a very solid job. Whenever Graham Potter finds himself a new fixer-upper somewhere, I think he'll do solid work again. But And it also doesn't mean that uh, the Deserby's De uh, work is devalued because there already was a strong fundament. I think it's a, just a case of him taking over a team that had certain strength that were good at certain things and just adding flourishes to make them so much more exciting and uh, absolutely electric to watch right now do try to watch brighton play if you haven't recently they are absolutely fantastic i've also got something on my notes here where it just says oh arsenal dot 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 because yeah uh if we were discussing whether the point at liverpool was a good or a bad point i don't think anyone's discussing whether a point at the London Stadium is a is a good or a bad point. I mean, losing a two 0 lead against this West Ham team is is not good for anyone. If if we're trying to be Mister Cheerful here, you've already if you listen to this, you probably also listen to some other podcasts. You probably read articles by by all these clever people. So you've read a certain number of people bemoan uh, Arsenal's inability to keep on to Leeds and oh it's all it's all done now and the betting markets have swung massively towards Man City and, and yeah uh, now it looks more likely that we'll get a City win I would agree with that if you're looking for reasons to be cheerful Arsenal fans I guess one of them would be that in a sense that result doesn't massively change their task uh, their task is still that they have to not lose to Man City and they have to win the rest of their games that, that that was the situation before the West Ham game it is still the situation so it doesn't change that much uh, in, in one sense but it's still concerning to see the team throw away a 2-0 lead to West Ham that would concern anyone but fundamentally the task hasn't completely changed and additionally I guess the thing you're looking for if you're an Arsenal fan and you're thinking how how is it we're gonna it's all going wrong it's all going wrong it is Manchester City's fixture list they have a lot of games to to play they're still in the FA Cup. They're likely to, to knock Sheffield United out of that one, so probably off to Wembley. Obviously, the Champions League is huge for them, will be their, their biggest priority probably. They have a rescheduled game away to Brighton, who are, of course, very, very good at the moment uh, to, to be manoeuvred. So, and... and and actually, as much as we talk about Man City having, oh, they're so rich, they have all the money, they do, their squad is... You know, it's not that deep. There are some positions where there's like an incredible embarrassment of riches. You know, Phil Foden gets injured and you barely miss him because you've got so many good options. Like Bernardo Silva doesn't even play every game, even though he's incredible. So in some positions, yeah, poor, poor Alvarez up front, fantastic player. Can't get in the team most of the time. Uh, but um, there are certain positions where they actually don't have that many backups. So, so a lot of these guys are going to have to play a lot of games in a short space of time. Uh, that could be difficult. Sorry, Arsenal fans. I'm really trying to find uh, a positive here. It just it does look like it might be slipping away. But the point is, it still comes down to the game against City. That that I guess is the good news. The bad news is, whew, gonna have to play a lot better than they have the last two games uh, to get anything out of City, who just look terrifying right now. City being terrifying. I feel like I've said it before, but it is it is the big story about what's happening on the pitch in the Premier League right now. Anyway, I think that's enough for this one. Looking ahead to the weekend, uh, haven't written the betting column yet. We'll do so very, very soon. It's just Wednesday after all. Uh, but I am looking at uh, Brentford Aston Villa. And I think, you know, having having doubted Villa, 
and seeing them completely blow Newcastle away, I'm increasingly sort of thinking, wow, the Villa thing could could be real. Certainly real enough that I look at the price for a Villa win here and think it's a little bit on the high side now. Brentford have gone off the boil a little bit results-wise. Uh, I haven't seen all of their games. Thomas Frank insists they're still playing well. Um, but you can get a, a bet on Aston Villa at, uh, with a draw-no-bet caveat here uh, with bets on. So if Aston Villa win, you win. But if there's a draw, you get your stake returned. So the only thing that can uh, can scupper your plans there would be a Brentford win. Do we think Aston Villa on tremendous form, full of confidence, uh, having defied their numbers? Yes, but then putting up a monster performance, just brilliant stuff against Aston Villa. Are they going to go off against the Brentford team that maybe are on the beach a little bit? Results have not been going well. Are they going to go and lose? I don't really think so. I would trust them to get some kind of result here. I wouldn't be surprised if they if they won at all, and we could hedge it a little bit with that draw-no-bet caveat, so we only lose if Brentford win, which I don't think they will do. I think that's a decent price. I think that will uh, will get into the betting column when I get round to writing it. Very frustrating period with the boosted trebles that we do. I thought for sure we had it this weekend. I couldn't imagine Arsenal messing things up against uh, West Ham the way they did, but they did. So let's see if I can sniff out a, a better treble this weekend. We gotta, uh, we, we've been close a couple of times now with that one, and uh, maybe this is the weekend we get it right. Follow me on Twitter and keep an eye out for when uh, the uh, weekend betting preview drops there, probably on Friday is when that usually happens. And as always, uh, please gamble responsibly. Uh, I, th- I think that's it for now. I think that's it. Let's call it there. Uh, thanks for listening yes again to what is I mean we're gonna have to have a, a Frank Lampard free episode next episode no matter what happens no ep- no mentions of Chelsea or Frank Lampard it's, it's been it's been a lot of it but I'm sorry it's just uh, there's such a clown car at the moment it's very hard to look away uh Poor, poor Frank. I, 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 I'm guessing, yeah, I do mean it. Poor Frank Lampard. He has actually been put... He, he's having to be the, the face of all this nonsense, which actually isn't his fault. I, I have some sympathy for the man. Who knew? Who knew I'd, I'd be saying that uh, this, uh, this spring? But here we are. Anyway, thanks for hanging out with me yet again. I'll see you next time.